Good morning. I still get a little nervous when I do this, so just bear with me as I work through that. It goes away. Um, so we've had some bit of some stuff happening this morning. Uh, it seems like things are going wrong, and truck's messing up, the TV's messed up, the bulletins, we forgot them, and nothing wrong with the money bag, though, huh? <laughs> That's whole. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help it. <laughs> All right, we'll pray. Uh, Father God, again, we thank you, Lord. Um, we thank you again for your presence, God. Uh, God, I just want to just give this time to you, God. God, I pray that your word will just flow forth, God. I believe that you have given this word, God, for this body, for myself, God, for those who are listening. And God, we, we trust and believe that your word will accomplish what you set it out to do. Uh, so just have your way in this service. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're starting a new uh, sermon series, as you can see, Baddest of the Bible Sermon Series, Learning from the Bible's Bad Examples. Uh, I think we all know probably there's people that are either in your life or have been in your life where about the only thing you can say about them is, is like, I know not what to do because of you, right? Like, yeah, you influenced me and I know what not to do. Um, so that's kind of what we're doing as we go through the sermon series. It's several weeks long. Josh is giving the word, I believe, over at the uh, South Toledo campus. They're both over there. They're doing like a baby dedication and some other things there. Um, so um, as soon as I was, uh, got the date that I was going to be preaching and the sermon series that we're doing, I, just, I really heard the Lord tell me Saul, King Saul. That's who I'm going to be speaking about this morning. Um, he was Israel's first king, and he began where the, um, the judges of Israel ended. So this is going to be a, I hope it's not painstaking, I'm going to try my best. I have a lot of scripture. Um, I think anytime you're given kind of the life of an Old Testament person, you're going to have a lot of scripture. Um, so just bear with me as we read through this. I, I'm going to summarize a lot of this, um, but read a lot of this as well. Um, so the office of title, the office and title of judges began after the death of Joshua, right? We know Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt. Um, at his death, Joshua took over, um, and he led the people into the land that God had promised Abraham and his generations. Um, it was a very uh, rough time, really, in Israel's history. A lot of war, um, a lot of conquest. God sent them into the land. There were already people there, so it was constant war. Um, they, were, they were just warriors. Moses, actually, i don't not sure, they don't really teach this in Bible school, but Moses was actually a warrior. He was a great warrior. Joshua, after him, was a warrior and a military leader. They were great military minds, and they were gifted by God to do this. After Joshua died, that began um, the judges, the line of judges in Israel. Um, God used the judges. They were basically military leaders. God would raise up when the people needed. Um, I just kind of did some some quick looking, there was, I believe, about 12 judges over about 300 years. Um, they were basically military leaders, like I said, that God would raise up at time of need. Some of the names of the judges that anybody who's kind of been in church and studied will recognize would be Gideon was a judge, uh, Deborah, uh, probably the most famous was Samson, was a judge of Israel, and then Samuel. Um, Samuel was the last judge of Israel, and he was also a prophet of Israel. Um, so we're going to kind of get in, again, this is kind of a history lesson to kind of get to know where Saul came from, how they went from, you know, the leadership of Moses and the leadership of Joshua and then the judges into desiring a king and God giving them a king. Um, so 
The first text I'm going to read out of is 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. And it says, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, possibly. That's probably how you pronounce it. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Even though they had judges, God still ruled his nation through his judges, through prophets. That's, how, that's the government, really, that God had set up for his nation was through judges that he appointed. God raised these men up. This is the nation of Israel as a whole rejecting that authority that God had placed over them, that line of authority that God had placed over them. Um, kind of the reasoning behind them was kind of justified, right? Samuel's sons were rebellious. They were taking bribes. They were perverting justice. Samuel was getting old. Instead of going to God and asking him to maybe replace Samuel's sons or going to Samuel and asking him to replace his sons, they just outright reject um, the, 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 that, just that, that authority that God had placed over them. Um, Israel's desire for a king was born out of rebellion towards God. Up until now, the people of Israel depended on God to raise up judges to lead them, but now they, they were leaning towards a monarchy. The reason given is that they wanted to be like all of the nations around them. Uh, later on in chapter 8, uh, verses 10 through 17, Samuel kind of gets into what a king does, that the king is going to take your sons. He's going to take your money. He's going to take your property. You will serve the king. This is what a king is. Up till now, they were kind of a loose tribe, 12, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel. They didn't have a central figure really pulling them in and leading them. So Samuel's warning them that in getting a king, this is what you're going to get. You're going to get a man who's going to start, you're going to start having to pay taxes, tribute, um, he's going to take your sons to be in his military. He's going to take your daughters um, to be in his household, his servants, and all of these things. But God, but the, the people, they wanted a king. They, they were rejecting that authority. 1 Samuel 8, 19 through 22. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. So he took this to God, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. So then Samuel said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. And then this is where Saul comes into the picture. Now Saul was just a man lived in his father's house. They were from the tribe of Benjamin. Wasn't really anything special. There was no like royal line that, Samuel, or that Saul was brought out of. Samuel, 1 Samuel 9, 1 and 2. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bacharoth, son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. 
There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of his people. So Saul was basically the epitome of what you would desire out of a leader, out of a king. Tall, best-looking guy literally in the entire nation. And that's, that's how man looks, right? Later on when God's dealing with David and talking about raising David up, he says that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart, right? So God gave the people what they wanted. So then Saul goes, and I'm just going to summarize this as part of chapter 9, so I don't have to read so much. Um, basically, one day Saul in his father's house, um, some donkeys came up missing. So Saul went out with his servant to go look for these donkeys. They couldn't find them, so his servant has said to him, um, there's a prophet in this city, let's go ask the prophet, he'll tell us exactly where they're at. So they go to the city, and they find the prophet, which is Samuel. Um, Samuel's at the city for a sacrifice, so he's going up on the high place for a sacrifice. Now this little part here, I find, I just, I, I have to say this, I find this really interesting, which is uh, chapter 9, 15 through 17. So Saul is going about just his daily life, right? They lose some donkeys, he goes out to get them. A day literally like any other uh, serving in his father's house. Verse 15. Now the day before Saul came to Samuel, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Two things about this is I find interesting is one, just how God orchestrates events. And God does this in our own lives, doesn't he? Like the things that God is doing behind the scenes and orchestrating around our lives, just as we walk with God and as we follow God, like God will get you where he wants you to go. And you, you really literally may not even realize you're going out that day to be where God wants you to be, to meet the man that God wants you to meet, to do what God has planned for your life. That's exactly what happened to Saul. On Samuel's end, I, I, just, I find it in the Old Testament too, even with the prophets, just how clearly the prophets in the Old Testament heard from God, right? Just how clear of a, of a word that this is from God. There's going to be a man, he's coming to you, this is what he's looking for, this is what he's doing, this is where he's going. I, like, I want to hear from God like that. I don't know about you guys. When I, when I seek God for an answer, like, I want to hear from God. And you can follow the life of Samuel. All through Samuel, God's just very specific in what he wants Samuel to do. Um, I think that's just, Samuel just walked with God. You know what I mean? Samuel had a closeness with God. He was obedient to God and was able to hear the voice of God. He had a heart of obedience towards God and was able to hear these. That's what I believe. And I believe when we walk in obedience and we walk right with God, that we are able to hear the Holy Spirit, when he speaks to us like that. So Saul meets Samuel. Samuel tells him that his donkeys are safe at home and then invites Saul to stay the night and eat. Again, that's like 25 verses of the Old Testament. I just condensed into a few words. You're welcome. Uh, so Samuel then anoints Saul as king, and it's just the two of them, which is found in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. 
And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Again, this is a bunch of verses I'm just going to condense. Basically, Samuel tells Saul, you're going to leave here. You're going to meet a group of men. They're going to tell you your donkeys are safe at your father's house. You're going to go with them. You're going to go up on the hill, and then you're going to start prophesying. And that's the sign that Samuel gave to Saul. This is how you know I'm telling you the truth. Right? This is what's going to happen when you leave me. This is what's going to happen. Again, just that specificity that a prophet is able to give people. That's amazing to me. Um, two verses I want to read. One is verse 6 out of chapter 10. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. So God gave Saul his spirit and turned him into another man. And then it says the same thing basically in verse 9. When he turned his back to leave Samuel... God gave him another heart, and all of these signs came to pass that day. So Saul goes home, sees his father. His father says, we found the donkey, blah, blah, blah. Saul doesn't tell anybody about what happened. Anybody. Again, 30 verses right there. Um, so then we move forward, and Samuel calls all of the people of Israel together to proclaim Saul as king. Up until now, the people are completely unaware of what Samuel's doing, of who Saul is, of who their king is going to be. Samuel, once again, as the people are gathered, he points out their rebellion to him in, in verse 19 of chapter 10. He says, but today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all of your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and your thousands. It's, again, it's just that pointing out that rebellion that the people had towards God. And when you follow Israel, they were rebellious all throughout the Old Testament. So Samuel casts Lot, and eventually it lands on Saul. Funny enough, Saul, who knew he was going to be king when all this was going on, went and hid in luggage. Later on in the verses, he says that because he thought he was lowly. He looked at himself as if he was lowly. So Saul becomes king, and God's favor is on Saul. God's spirit came over Saul. And over the next, you know, few verses, chapters, um, Saul brings the kingdom military victories, defeats their enemies, sacrifices peace offerings before the Lord, and the men of Israel are rejoicing. And he's bringing the people back to God as their king. Saul started out as a king with God's favor on his life and God's spirit on his life. He started out correctly in, in God, in the Lord. He walked with God, and he was obeying God, and he had God's favor, and he, and he had... Um, God's spirit on him, and he was successful in the things that he was doing. But then that rebellion starts to set in. The first rebellion of Saul is found. Chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. Um, they're again, they're, they're, they're in a battle against the Philistines, and it's not looking good. So Saul goes, instead of waiting for Samuel... Saul goes and offers a sacrifice to God, which is completely out of order, and Saul knows that it's out of order. Chapters th or verses 13 and 14. Samuel says, yeah, and Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Um, a couple things in this verse. One, Saul's told your kingdom will not continue. This, you're done. That's it. Your kingdom will not continue. Um, Saul's rebellion towards the things of God, 
God does not tolerate this, this type of rebellion, this type of disobedience towards his word. Um, two, this is kind of the first part where David is introduced to the people of Israel, that God calls David a man after his own heart. So this is where God starts looking for David. He, he's telling Saul, your kingdom's done. I'm going after somebody whose heart is after mine. Um, the third thing, too, that I find really clear in this is that our choices dictate, can dictate what God is going to do, right? If you see this, and this is what it says is, is that you have not kept the commandment for which your God has commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom in Israel forever. If Saul would have obeyed, God would have established Saul's kingdom forever, but he didn't. He took it from him, and now that's where we get King David. God established David as the line from which Jesus would come, not Saul. Saul could have. He could have. That was God's intention with this. But because of Saul's disobedience, God took that from him. Our choices and our disobedience to God absolutely dictate the course of our life. I think sometimes we get into the whole free will aspect of our lives and, and just the, the um, like God is in control, and God is in control of everything. And I think it's easy to kind of take on maybe this attitude of, if, if, well, if God wills it, it's going to happen. Well, not necessarily. You can absolutely disobey your way right out of what God has for your life. You absolutely can. The second rebellion, which this, this, is, this is what ripped the kingdom from Saul right here. Um, and this is um, a little bit of reading because I, I, this is just, I think it's too important to skip over and summarize for what we're talking about. If you haven't got it, we're talking this morning about rebellion um, and disobedience. That was Saul's heart towards God was rebellion and disobedience for the things that God was telling him to do. The Amalekites in chapter 15 um, were, were harsh enemies of Israel. So God gives a command to Saul in chapter 15. He says, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction. That's the nation. All that they have, do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. This is not just symbolic. This is a literal command from God. But this is symbolic of how God is in our lives. Destroy all of that. Get all of that out of your life. I want every bit of that out of, out of you. It's absolute. Absolute destruction is what God commanded. But again, Saul disobeyed. Saul took King Agag alive. Saul also kept the best sheep and oxen, all the lambs, that it was good. They destroyed the lesser things. The Lord told Samuel he regretted making Saul king because Saul turned his back on God and was refusing to follow his commandments. So Samuel finds Saul, and the first thing that Saul says is that he, he says, I have performed all that the Lord has commanded, which was a lie. So Samuel asks him, well, then what do I hear? What are these animals? Where's that from? So then Saul claims that the animals were saved for sacrifice. So I'm going to start reading here in verse 17. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king of Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice 
to the Lord your God in Gilgal. That was Samuel or Saul's excuse. I did what I was supposed to do. The people, they took the best animals to sacrifice for God. Like it was a good thing. And then this is a passage of scripture. It's very familiar to people. Samuel says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption, which is assuming what God wants you to do even though he's commanded you to do it. Presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. That's heavy, isn't it? What I would say about this is, is there's, there's nothing you can give God and there's nothing you can do for God that's better than what he has told you to do. Even if it's a simple, small thing that you think it is. He tells you to do one thing for one person. You disobey that to go do something for 50. That's not a better thing. Sacrificing or thinking you're sacrificing or offering something to God does not take the place of your obedience to what God has told you to do. God actually calls it the sin of divination, which is sorcery, which is witchcraft. God rejected him for this. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. The people. He did this because of the people. There's such a danger in man-pleasing, worrying about what other people think, allowing that to dictate your decisions. Paul says it in Galatians 1.10. He says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ, which is huge. That's huge. I personally, I'll just be honest. You guys know I get pretty honest up here. Um, I do this sometimes. I'm just going to be honest with you. Like, I, I do fall into that caring what other people think. I do sometimes allow what other people think or say, dictate my decisions. I work, you know, down at the Cherry Street Mission, and I work sometimes with the men that stay there. And sometimes you have to have hard conversations with them. Sometimes you have to dig into somebody's life, and it's uncomfortable. And it's, it's easy to allow that to stop you from doing what God's telling you to do. I want you to go say this to them. And if you start worrying about what that person or the people around you are going to think about what you're doing, it's going to freeze you up. And look what it did to Saul. His, his desire to look good in front of people destroyed him. Literally. It literally destroyed him. Allowing what other people thought of him destroyed him. He was a king. The first king over the people of Israel. And he allowed the opinions of other men to destroy that and rip that away from him. Now, therefore, verse 26, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel says to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man. He's talking about God. 
that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. He just got rejected as king. He tore the robe of a prophet of God. Gets told that that God's going to rip this kingdom the same way of you. And then the, the words out of his mouth are, can you at least honor me in front of the people? Like, that's ridiculous, isn't it? Like, look at his heart. Where his heart's at. You don't see any repentance. You don't see anything out of Saul other than, well, just honor me in front of the people. Can you please honor me in front of the people? And Samuel said no. Verse 32, then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past, thinking he's all right. Nothing's going to happen to him. But Samuel, he's a boss. (laughs) And as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Hacked him to pieces. Old, remember, he's old now. That's why Israel's rejecting him, because he's old. Pulls out a sword and hacks this king to pieces. Saul's disobedience led to the instant removal of God's favor, even though Saul remained king for at least 20 years after that. Another little side note. Sometimes we can think, even though we're walking in disobedience, we know we're walking in disobedience, when we don't see the immediate discipline or consequences of our sin, we can think we're all right. Can't we? Nothing's happened. I did that for years and years and years and years. Walked in outright disobedience and rebellion against God, the depths of my sin. And God, God was mercy, had mercy on me. But I, it, it deceives you. When, when you. when you walk in sin and God's punishment or the consequences, your earthly consequences of your own sin doesn't touch you, you start to begin to think that you're all right. And it makes you comfortable in your sin. I'll tell you something. My mom told me this my entire life. God does not wink at our sin ever. Not even the smallest little bit of sin. Our God is holy. And he's righteous and he's just. And he loves us. But sin is not tolerated in the presence of God at all. In the very next chapter, Samuel is sent to find David. That's chapter, I believe, 16. So... The kingdom's ripped from Saul, and then Samuel goes right out to find David. God sends him out to find David. It's a whole different story. But you can see in the life and story of David, the very things that God took from Saul, he gave them to David. Saul had no favor after this, to the point where he hid from Goliath, and David came out as as a young man. I don't know how young he was, but as a young man, and killed this giant that Saul the king was hiding from. God gave his favor and his spirit to David after that. It went to David. And you can see that even as Saul went through his, um, like a depression, there was, there was a, a, a tormenting spirit that was sent to Saul. Excuse me, after that. Saul eventually brought David in close to him because David's presence brought relief to Saul. There was that favor and that presence of God that Saul was missing that God ripped from him because of his rebellion and put it on David. Saul still wanted to be close to that. He still drew that in. But, but what it did to Saul was it, it, it put something in him, and you can read all of this, but Saul ended up trying to kill David. He chased him for years and years and years through the wilderness. David never touched him. And, and Saul just basically went mad. And the end of his life was on a battlefield 
where he shoved a sword through his stomach. And that's how Saul ended. Suicide. He killed himself on the battlefield. Picked by God to be the first king of Israel. And his end was suicide on the battlefield in depression, schizophrenia, whatever else he was suffering from, from his rebellion from God. So I, like, you know, when, when I knew God was giving me this word on, on Saul, and I knew right away this is, this is Saul, this is who he was as a man. So I, so I go through this, and I'm praying through this, and I'm asking God, like, what, like what, what is this? And it's the rebellion. And this is what I heard God say to me. He gave me this statement. It's constant state of rebellion. That's what God said to me. I was sitting on my couch praying, and that's what God said to me. And it kind of shook me a little bit. And I had to pray through it. When I hear or when we hear something from God, the first thing we should do, and I actually texted a friend and kind of asked him, like, what do you, you know, when you get a word from God, how do you know it's either for you or for somebody else? You know what I mean? Because if this is God talking to me, I don't want to reject it and say, oh, this is for the body. And, but, you know, if it applies to me, I want it to apply to my life. And we should do that when we hear from God. First apply it to your life. See if it fits. And then take it to somebody else. So I did that. And what I heard, what I heard from God was, that this is everybody. Like, this is the human condition, that we are in a constant state of rebellion against God. This is, I heard this from God. So, so praying through it is, what I feel like God showed me is, is this is our flesh, right? This is our sinful nature. It is always at war with God. Our sinful nature is at war with God always. This is a constant battle. The importance of understanding this truth cannot be overstated. Paul basically dedicated almost the entire book of Romans to this war of the flesh and the spirit. One thing I do want to say is, is, is and, and I was taught this when I was in Team Challenge. I had a pastor talk to me about this, but not everything that happens either within us or around us can be blamed on spirits or demonic spirits, right? Sometimes it's us. Sometimes it's our flesh. And we give in to our flesh, and that's where our sin comes from. I was struggling with some things one time when I was up there, and I was praying in front of the chapel. And it was a hard time up there, but I'm leaving. And in my mind, that's why I'm just kind of like rebuking the enemy, and I'm praying through it. And there's this Pastor Adrian, good man of God, and he comes up to me, and he says, are you doing all right? I said, man, I'm really going through it. I feel like the enemy's coming out. He didn't even let me finish. He said, stop. Brother, that's not the enemy. That's you. Like, those are your thoughts. It's not Satan. That's you. That's your flesh. We have to recognize this. One of the things my father-in-law, he's back in children's church now, Brian, from one of the first times I met him, he really tried to, to ingrain this into me, is learning to discern between your flesh and your spirit. When you become born again, this is the literal definition of born again, your spirit that God breathed into you at creation, your spirit becomes alive again, right? That's born again. Once that happens, your flesh and your spirit, they start to war with each other. Your flesh loves the things that are against God. They hate. Your flesh hates the things of God and is constantly fighting against that. Your spirit desires the things of God and hates the things of the flesh. And there is this war within us that is constantly going on. There is a part of us that is in a constant state of rebellion against the things of God. And we have got to know this, and we have got to fight this. 
This is our fight within ourselves. Your fight with your flesh has nothing to do with me, right? My fight with my flesh has nothing to do with you. I can't fight your battle. You can't fight mine. This is something we have to learn and do on our own. Romans 8, 5 through 9. Saying this, I will say, I encourage you, if this piques your interest at all, read, I say like Romans 5 through 9, 50 times. And then read it 50 more, because it can be hard to understand. But read it over and over and over and over and over again. This will save your life. This will give you victory over these things. Romans 8, 5 through 9. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. I'll say real quick, I think it's in, uh, is it like Galatians? Six is the works of the flesh. There's 17 works of the flesh. And then there's nine fruits of the Spirit. And that's what this is talking about, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. When you're operating in self-control or love or peace or patience, you're walking in the Spirit. When you're not operating in those things and you're operating in the opposite things, you're walking in the flesh. It's not the enemy. It's not Satan. It's your flesh. God tells us to crucify our flesh. That's what Jesus means when he says, pick up your cross daily. The cross represents the death of the flesh. We crucify this daily. Call it out in your life and crucify it. Verse 6, for to set the mind on flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh, listen now, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You cannot please God when you're operating out of the flesh. and You cannot walk with God if you're operating out of the flesh. God says, I think it's it's in Isaiah, he says, "Is is my ear deaf that I cannot hear? Is my hand too short that I cannot save you? But your sins, your iniquity has built a wall between us. God doesn't tolerate these things. Verse 9, you, however, you're not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. I'm going to read this out of James. James says it really well, too, um, talking about just the flesh and sin and where it comes from. Uh, James, this isn't up there. James chapter 1, verse 14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to to death. It brings forth death. One of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten in dealing with this right here is, and maybe Billy Graham said it, um, but it is when you get a temptation or a thought or that flesh rises up, you have like three to five seconds to kick it out and crucify it, or else you're starting down that path that James is talking about. That thought, it it gives birth to desire. First it's a thought, then it's a desire, then you follow it out, and then comes death. It's very simple. It's a progression. We have to catch it at the thought. As soon as that thought enters your mind, God, I don't want that in my heart. Lord, I don't want that in my heart. Memorize verses that counteract the things that your flesh deals with. All of our flesh desires different things, right? My flesh desires different things than your flesh. That's why some people are alcoholics. Some people are addicted to money. Some people are addicted to all of these other things. They chase after these things to feed that part of their flesh. Some of those things may have zero temptation for you. You don't desire those things at all. But there are things that your flesh desires, and you need to learn to recognize them. And as soon as that thought hits your mind, you need to kick it out. Literally say the words out loud if you have to in the middle of Walmart. Lord, I don't want that in my heart. Get it out. 
I don't want it in my heart. Romans 7, 15 through 20. This is, again, you know, we, I call the, the sinful nature like the human condition. It's your sinful nature, whatever you want to call it. Paul lays this out the best. I've read this to people who are not believers at all, and after reading it, they're, that's me. That's what they say, that's me. That's what I do. It's Romans chapter 7, verse 15 through 20. And remember, this is Paul talking, the super guy, you know, ascended into heaven at one point when he was about half beaten to death, got revelations from God that we can't even imagine, used by God in a way few people in the history of humanity have ever, have ever been used. And this is later on in his ministry. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but, the very th- but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who does it, but the sin that dwells within me. The best example I can get, and again, I'll just be just brutally honest right now, is, and I, we've all been together for a while now, um, like I had a serious addiction issues uh, for the majority of my life. Started very young, early teens, clear up till I was 30 years old. There was a long period of time where, where I would literally, almost crying because I hated what I was doing so much but kept right on doing it. Hated what I was doing. Going out to get what I was getting, hated it. Hated myself for it, crying out to God the whole time I'm on, my, on my, I'm on my way to my dude's house to get whatever I was getting. Going home to do my stuff, miserable, crying, hating it the whole time. I literally lived like that for years. I lived like that. That was me. Doing what I hated, not being able to do what I wanted. This is why Jesus died for us. Like, you understand that, right? Like, this is why Jesus died. Yes, he, he died to, to, to take us to heaven, and that's, that's awesome, but there is absolutely a work that God wants to do in us on this earth. And I've, I don't have this in my notes, so I'm going to look it up. Um, when Jesus was baptized by John, this is in, in Luke, Jesus was baptized by John, the Baptist, went out in the desert, was tempted, didn't eat for 40 days, comes back in, comes into Nazareth, this is Luke chapter 4, as was his custom, went into the Sabbath day on synagogue, and then he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled it and found the place where it was written. I almost look at this as Jesus' like opening statement to the beginning of his ministry. This, read this, this is found in Isaiah chapter 61. It's the first one and a half verses. This is how Jesus presented himself to begin his ministry. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." This is what Jesus came to do to set us free, 
to give us liberty, to give us victory over these things that we're talking about this morning. Saul rejected it. You know, it's interesting when you look at the life of David. Um, Saul kept these animals to sacrifice to God because the people wanted him to. That was his sin. David slept with his friend's wife, got her pregnant, Bathsheba, and then had her husband murdered, and then hid it from God. And then God still called David a man after my own heart. Like, isn't that something? That Look at the, the difference, how we would look at that. One guy just keeps some, some animals and, and to, to sacrifice to God. That's a good thing. And God ripped the kingdom from him. Look what David did. And then look at what God said about him. It's that grace that God had for David. So even I was just out there before coming in and I'm praying to God, like, what, like, like, like what, what is that? And what I heard from God, and I'm going to read this, is it's, it's found in James chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Sorry, I didn't have this in my notes. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. David was humble before God. He sinned. He messed up. Arguably a worse sin than what Saul did. Terrible what David did. Murder. But he had a humble heart before God. Saul, when he gets confronted about his sin, asks Samuel to bless him in front of the people still. David, after he had hid his sin from God for a year, Nathan the prophet confronts him, and David rips his clothes and falls on his face, crying out to God, I've sinned against you, forgive me. It's the heart that David had for God and, and the things of God, that humility. And then I'm going to read this on. Chapter 7 says, submit yourselves therefore. This is, remember, the word therefore, when you see it, it means read again what you just read. God gives, opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, because of that, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. I did a little word study. I haven't done a lot of word studies because you can get a little too deep, I think, sometimes. But that word submit means reflective or reflexive obedience. That's the literal definition of that, reflexive obedience. A re, what's a reflex? Somebody throws something at you. It's immediate. You don't even think about it. Immediate. That's how God wants us to be, reflexive obedience. When he speaks, we obey. Just like that. Not even a thought. It's not even a thought of rebellion in our heart towards God. We don't even think about rebelling against God or disobeying against God. I believe, in, even as I was saying earlier, and I'm guilty of this, I'll just be 100% honest, I don't care. God wants to draw us closer to him. He wants to draw us near to him. Is there a little thing inside of you, that deep inside of you that has that, I may not do what he asks me to do. I may not give up what he's asking me to give up. If that's in your heart this morning, you can't draw close to him. You can't. I can't either. He doesn't tolerate it. God doesn't tolerate it. But he's given us the ability to get rid of these things. And what I would end with is first allow the Holy Spirit to reveal that in you, if it's in you this morning. Just that little snippet 
Because that will cause that hesitation. There might be some things I won't do for God if he asks it of me. Root it out. God's faithful, and he'll show you what it is this morning if you genuinely ask him. If it's in there, God will show you what it is this morning. He will. He loves you. God, God's desire to draw you closer far outweighs your desire to draw close to him this morning. His desire for you, you can't fathom. I can't. We cannot fathom the depths of God's love for us and his desire to pull us into him. Saul just continued doing what was right in his own eyes, making excuses. He allowed the things to live. God told him to put them to death. An example of absolute obedience is Samuel and Agag. What did he do? He drug him out and he hacked him to pieces. That's a literal interpretation of what God wants us to do with our sin. To the depths of us, root it out. Get it out of you. Ask God to reveal it. Get it out of you. This is an absolute if you're going to walk with God moving forward. It's an absolute. This is, God is not a man that he should lie. God is in us. He doesn't operate like us. We can, and we should know this, those of us who are in relationship with anybody, we have the ability as people to get into a fight or an argument and ignore it long enough and it seems to go away, right? We can just kind of let it go. Just ignore it long enough, it'll go away. I see you again and we're buddies again, right? Or this thing's not between us anymore. God doesn't deal with that. He does not. God says, I want this out of your life. You literally do not move past that point with God until that is out of your life. He doesn't forget. He doesn't compromise. He does not let that thing go. He's done that in my life. I've literally spent, and my wife can attest, we've dealt with things. I spent almost a full year of my life, and this is just in the last three years, almost a full year of my life not doing one thing that God had told me to do, and God refused to let that go. He will not let it go. And who suffered? Not just me. The plan God has for my life, the people God wants me to affect, my house, my friends, my relationships. God doesn't move. When God puts his finger on something in our lives, he doesn't move past it. I would encourage you this morning to have the courage to ask God to put his finger on something in your life that he doesn't like, and then have the courage and the boldness to deal with it, if you guys can stand up. We're always welcome, and you guys know this, you're always welcome to come up and pray. Um, I'll stay up here and pray. I'm not going to do like a traditional altar call. Some of these things um, can be a little too personal. Um, so you know if, if God's speaking to you. Um, you know in your heart if God is pointing something out. I would again encourage you, just be bold with God. Be courageous. Allow your desire for God in your life to start to match his desire for you in his life. I would ask that if anybody has anything like that, just now, that you know what it is, just talk to God. We're going to stay just for one second. It's, this is God's in here. I believe that. God, God inhabits his people. God is here. The Holy Spirit is here. God wants this from you. He does. He desires this from you. This is a deep desire. Writing this sermon out was different than anything I've ever done. It was completely different. God showed me so much about myself and in my life and what I'm doing and what he wants me to do than anything that I've ever done. 
this was, this was a tough one to put together just because I had to deal with some stuff in my own life before I could ever move forward. The way I, it's, these are just hard issues. They're hard issues.